Welcome to Cisco Champions Radio, Season 5, Episode 12. Today we'll be talking about Wi-Fi troubleshooting and optimization. Our Cisco SME today is Jerome Henry, and our champions hosts today are Roel Dionisio and Robert Boardman. As for me, I'm Brett Shore from the Cisco Champion Program Team, and I'm your moderator today. Jerome, if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role at Cisco, that would be a great start. All right. So, hi, everybody. Welcome to this session. Um, my name is Jerome Henry. I'm what they call a principal engineer in the wireless business unit at Cisco. Um, what that means is that I look at what protocols are coming in the upcoming three to five years, and what I'm trying to do is to make sure that we have you know, solutions that could anticipate problems that you may be finding when implementing those protocols. So, basically, if you don't have a problem in my network, in your network, it's thanks to me. If you have a problem, <laughs> then it's my fault. Thanks, Jerome. Uh, Rowell, you've done this before and you know the drill. Who are you, where are you, and what do you do? Sure, my name is Rowell Dionisio. Thanks for having me on this episode. I'm in the Bay Area and I'm a network engineer for higher education. Great, thank you. And Robert, same question. Who are you, where are you, and what do you do? Uh, my name is Robert Boardman. I am a network engineer in higher ed out here in California, and uh, I like to think I do Wi-Fi. Great, thanks. <laughs> Well, with that, I'll pass the mic over to Rowell and Robert to get things started. I'll start it off. Well, uh, you know, let me just start it off with tools because I think a lot of people have um, a problem trying to troubleshoot Wi-Fi, especially those who are not as um, technical savvy with Wi-Fi in general. They may be wired, have a wired background. Uh, Jerome, what kind of tools do you recommend using when it comes to troubleshooting Wi-Fi? Huh, you know, it, it's funny because I used to have a lot of tools and a lot of complicated tools where I could use some uh, tools to look at the polarization of signals and look at the RF in very much granularity to see if I could catch any coverage gap, etc. Um, but you know, being older now, I found that if you carry with you a basic phone that can give you some signal reading, you are already in good shape to try to understand the RF environment around you. If you have more than that, of course, you know, you can get a better grasp of what's going on on the RF space, but that's already a good start. But then when you get to troubleshooting, uh, probably you would need to have something to access the access points one way or the other. So that could be a console cable, could be a telnet, could be a SSH, and the controller as well. And in your brain, you have some tools that, you know, commands that you know how to run, uh, show this, show that, show AAA, show controllers, etc. Then... Um, as things go more complicated, uh, it's likely that the uh, commands you'll be running will not give you a full view of what's going on. And here, that's where probably things start going wrong uh, in, in this episode, uh, because that's where I typically tend to look at the air and capture traffic. <laughs> but, um, and this is where it goes wrong, because the tool used to capture traffic could be OmniPeak or Wireshark, that's one thing. But then once you have the traffic, you need to analyze it. Um, and I don't know for you guys, but what I find is that it's difficult uh, if you're not prepared in advance uh, to capture traffic real time and out of 5 million packets, find the packet that explains why things are, are going wrong if you can reproduce the problem in the first place. Um, so getting under your belt uh, some basic familiarity with a scripting and maybe some large big data processing tool um, uh, like Octave or, or MATLAB could actually be very useful to process large amount of data in, in little time and try to find that needle in the haystack. As, as you are, um, as you're doing packet analysis, how do you um, factor in things like MIMO? 
uh, when you're picking up those factors packets. Yeah, that's that's our nightmare, right? Uh, all of us, right? Because there's this race in Wi-Fi where you, you want to beat the clock and have the latest, uh, greatest protocol, and, and that means that. Uh, there is first this um, cutting-edge new access point or a new client that comes out with this new 11AX alpha revision uh, uh, driver that's not implementing the protocol even yet. <laughs> and then you have to capture that. So, of course, there is no no hardware for that. Um, so, MIMO, yeah, you're right, it, it, it is an issue. Special stream is an issue, and, and new protocols are an issue. So, we, we're always in, in a race that we lose all the time, right, um, to try to get the latest hardware that allows us to capture enough information um, that we can actually process the uh, the, uh, the troubleshooting that we're running. Um, so most of the time, I, I, I like to have an access point, you know, something recent that I can capture from if I can, um, or very recent laptop of a brand that, you know, is open enough that you can capture from that. I found that there is one which uh, logo is a fruit. I don't remember which one, but they have a fruit as a logo. Um, they are very easy to manipulate <laughs> for, for, for capture. Um, but you're right. It's, Wait. It's, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, isn't there a partnership now? Aren't you allowed to use the fruit's name? <laughs> well, actually, uh, yeah, we have a great <laughs> partnership with Apple, if, if that's the one you have in mind, which may not be the one I have in mind. <laughs> uh, but not to the point where, you know, I should officially recommend, um, you know, a, a, any particular tool. I mean, there's probably great Linux boxes out there as well. Um, but, yeah, it, on MacBook, it's fairly easy to capture. Yeah, really, there are tools that make it easy. Um, and also, they tend to be fairly recent in their uh, uh, chipset. But... You know, it's not always the latest because you'll always be beaten by someone. And MIMO is a problem. Special stream is a problem. New aggregation is going to be a problem. Uh, uplink MIMO is going to be a problem as well. So I'm aware that every time I go to a place where it's a fairly recent network, I may be fighting against the clock, you know, to get my hardware recent enough to beat theirs. And sometimes I fail. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you get to points where you say, well, I just don't have visibility. I, I just can't tell. So I have to go back to my controller or my access point CLI and hope that I can get information from there. And sometimes, you know, you just, just don't have enough. It's it's much more painful that way. So you, you talked about capturing packets and then analyzing them. Earlier you said you used two applications, Octave and MATLAB. So Octave is a, is a free open source version of MATLAB. And, you know, I, I hate to name MATLAB because it's a very, very expensive tool. And it looks like I have big glasses, and I, I do have big glasses, but not for that reason. Um, <laughs> so what, what I mean is, so Octave is a great tool, by the way, if, if you don't want to afford MATLAB. Um, but what I'm saying is that when you have a million packets, uh, you need to find patterns. Um, and, you know, uh, tools like OpenXL or Excel are great to graph, and I love to graph. Those are tools I use all the time as a starting point. Um, and very often from graphing the shape or the variation of signal, variation of packet density, you know, packet length, anything that could look odd, you will see things spiking off of your graph. And those are points where you want to go look at. Uh, and this is a great point to start. Uh, but sometimes if you have a lot of clients you capture from, it's not just one single client you, you're monitoring, um, you know, weirdness compensates weirdness. So in the end, it's sort of a blur of things that look mildly weird, but not more in one place than the other. Um, and that's where you, my eye fails. You know, I don't, I don't see in the graph anymore something that, you know, sticks out, you know, some big spike or something like that. Um, and that's where a tool that allows me to say, 
process all these, you know, interval between these frames and also processing in the second dimension um, the size of, of the packet and processing the third dimension, uh, you know, the amount of acknowledgement versus retry rate. Um, and you graph that, you know, 10 different dimensions. In the end, those tools are going to say, well, in that dimension, there is this outlier, which is way different from the others. Um, and of course, you know, you cannot do that in an Excel where it's only two dimension. You need something which doesn't care about dimension. It just, just graphs virtually and tells you where something uh, goes wrong. So that kind of statistical tool is what MATLAB is, is good at and Octave as well. Anything else that can graph in multiple dimension probably provides the same result. But those, you know, are you know, well-known tools where you input a large amount of data and you tell the thing, you know, look into it and tell me when everything is, is weird and it's going to spit out that weirdness very easily. So you prefer them over Excel, because I mean, we all know what you do with an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, you know, it's a little scary. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm scared too. Yeah, I, I love Excel. I use it all the time. Um, it's when I know what I'm looking for. Uh, say, if I'm troubleshooting voice, for example, I know that if I'm using a G711 codec and it's 160 byte type of packet load, um, I should get one packet out of my device every 20 milliseconds on average. If I do aggregation, it's going to be slightly different, but it's going to be a very regular tempo. So in Excel, I can just take two dimensions, you know, time and interval or packet size, um, and graph those. And I will very fast see if there is some gap or some hole. So Excel, I love it. It's the first thing I try. Um, but when the obvious is not there, you know, it, there is a good interval, and yet somebody tells you this, this communication doesn't work, uh, then you say, all right, so it may be this, this, and this, and this, and that, and it could be, again, you know, the acknowledgement rate uh, um, versus, you know, the uplink versus downlink aggregation. Are they aggregating the same way? Is there one that's buffering more? Um, and, and that's where, you know, there are so many dimensions that you can retry one after the other in Excel until you find the right spec, or you just throw everything into a tool that's going to, you know, analyze all these dimensions at once. Um, and getting lazier as I get older, um, I find that it's easier to write the equation that tells you this is what I'm looking for and spit all the equations inside the tool and let the tool do it. Then, you know, do the uh, um, massaging of the data in Excel first uh, before I can actually graph the two dimensions I'm looking for. Because in Excel, uh, as you know, you need to prepare the data. You know, you, you need to tell it what you're looking for uh, so that you can graph that one thing. Um, in those statistical tools, it's very clear. Plug to Cisco Live. If anybody hasn't seen Jerome's session on that, it's, it's, it's pretty mind-blowing. No, but yeah, everyone has Excel, and no, not many of us have thought to use Excel as a troubleshooting tool. But I see where you're going, where you have a capture, and you, it's just hard to see all that raw data in Wireshark. So you're exporting that into Excel and then filtering it out to viewing just the data you're looking for when it comes to troubleshooting. But you do have to know what you're trying to look for, right? It's not that Excel is going to spit it out for you, and then you, you automatically see your problem right there. Exactly, yeah. So, so for those who have, haven't seen the, this process, you, you take a Wireshark capture, you, you take the columns that you care about. It could be time, for example. That's one I use all the time because it gives you each packet time information. And then maybe, I don't know, RSSI column, SSNR column. So you, you create all these columns and you export this into a CSV file. And then you reopen the CSV file under Excel. And of course, all the columns are there, one after the other. Um, so then if you uh, do a scatter plot uh, in Excel, you just take one column, which typically would be time in my case, and then something else like RSSI. And you say, okay, do a scatter plot. 
um, and Excel is going to graph the RSSI versus time. So in the vertical axis, you have the RSSI, and the horizontal axis, you have the, the time. Um, so that gives you very, uh, very nice visibility of the RSSI over time. And if you have 50,000 packets, you know, I don't want to read 50,000 lines to look at the RSSI. But if I look at one line on Excel, I can see if it spikes up or down. So I, I can see immediately one point in time where the RSSI really was different because, you know, human brain is is built to notice, notice differences in the environment, things that are very different from the rest. Uh, so this is very easy for us to spot. Um, so that works well if you're just looking at the RSSI. If you say, um, what is the packet size? Well, then you either have to go back and create a column where the packet size is or get it from the Excel spreadsheet and um, do some computation about the packet size and, and then create a new column. So there is some prep work there needed to get that right data inside Excel so that you can go back and say, take that and this column and do a scatter plot. Um, so when the data is not immediately available as, as a column, uh, because it's not immediately available inside Wireshark or inside the capture, um, this is where you say, well, going across all this filtering uh, is going to be too complicated. Take um, uh, retry as an example. Um, if you have retry as an example, you can create a column with, where you will see retry. It's going to be one or zero, retried or not retried. And then what? You know, you have to separate the ones that are retried too much. You have to create time intervals in Excel where you say, if it's over a second, give me how many of these. You know, it's not something which is obvious in the column. You have to create groups and manipulate massage data to get those intervals and count them. So that's where you start working inside Excel until you get data enough in a format that allows you to graph it. And that's where I, I tend to give up and say, all right, let's put everything into that, those statistical tool and just do a count. And these tools are engineered you know, to do count, statistical counts. So they are much easier uh, than Excel to, to use in that case uh, because you don't need to do anything. You just tell them uh, to do it for you and they automate that process much, uh, much easily uh, compared to Excel. I think so, one of the most memorable parts of your presentation was when you actually took uh, the data from Wireshark, put it into Excel, and then you're able to display a device selecting its data rate, and you're able to correlate that too with the AP's uh, like transmit power and the minimum data rate it has selected, and you, you could determine how a certain device picks its data rate and then retries as it's trying to pick the right the right data rate to have a the AP demodulate it or have the device demodulate the transmission. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's a great, great point you have here because we all know that devices have a hardware factor which is different from the access point. Uh, so although we say there is a symmetry between the uplink and the downlink, practically speaking, the RX and TX chains are different so just because of the form factor. And that makes that the decision that the device makes to transmit at a certain data rate is going to be based on its own conditions, and these conditions may be different from what the access points so conditions are. Um, so, I, 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 yeah, Excel for that is a very good tool because um, you, if you think of those uh, rate shifting points and the signal at which those happen, RSSI and SNR, and also compare that to precisely the retry rate, and you graph them. Uh, in Excel, you cannot graph five dimensions, but you can definitely do five graphs and put them one above the other. And if the common line uh, horizontally is the time, well, then, you know, things that happen at some point in time on one graph or happen at the same point in time on the graph just above or below. Um, so that allows you to, to see that, that, that behavior um, and, and see how that device is, is reacting. 
um, one, I think one funny um, uh, experiment I've done was uh, in a hotel uh, where they had a, an access point in the, in the kitchen um, and that access point had free internet, whereas the rest of the hotel, you had to pay for the internet. Uh, so I was trying to figure out if I could get into the kitchen to get free Wi-Fi, uh, but it looked like it wasn't looking like somebody who was working in the hotel. So I got kicked out of the, of the kitchen. Uh, but they had this big revolving door going to the, going to the restaurant. Um, so I thought maybe I could get a signal from there. So I sat at the door uh, trying to get a glimpse of free Wi-Fi as um, you know the personnel was entering or leaving the kitchen through that door. Because when the door was closing, the signal was going poor, and when the door was opening, it was much better. Um, and actually, give me the idea to try different devices and see if they would behave differently. And it's interesting because when the door closes, um, the device, of course, sends traffic, fails because no acknowledgement from the access point. So it's going to try a certain number of times at a certain rate, and then it's going to fail, rate shift down, try again, and maybe rate shift down again, and rate shift down again. So observing the speed at which the device is going to redshift um, is actually very interesting because it gives you an understanding in the dynamism of the, of the algorithm inside that particular client uh, to react to changing conditions. And that can make a big difference in a real scenario with a, a real application, not just me trying around. Uh, because if the algorithm is very dynamic or aggressive, um, the, the application is likely to work very well for voice. Uh, because you're going to redshift very fast before you know you get to that point where you're losing too many packets and you start hearing glitches. Um, but at the same time, if you're running something which is demanding, um, where the codec is less um, uh, elastic, uh, like a you know, video conference, um, this aggressivity uh, may result in more spikes in, in your video, uh, just because you're alternating faster well, another device will just retry a few more times. And if you're just you know, moving around, you're not having this door issue, but you're just moving around, spinning on yourself or moving on, on your chair, um, that aggressive uh, uh, behavior may provide more pixel on the video than the one which is just retrying a little bit more and be more conservative. But at the same time, if you're moving, walking around, then the one which is more conservative may be trying more and then fail more while the first one is going to adapt faster to those changing conditions. So it's interesting to observe that there is no you know, good and bad behavior. There is a, you know, a sort of engineer design of, of the behavior of that device, thinking of a particular type of environment that would be the most common that is going to drive how that device is going to react to those conditions. Knowing those is key because that may explain why when you try, you don't have a problem. When I try, I have a problem just because our devices are slightly different. And although the form may be the same, you know, you have a phone, I have a phone, it's a different brand the driver chipset might be very different because of, of those different assumptions made by the engineering team. Interesting. So as you're doing all these packet analysis around, because I know, as you've always said, you capture packets everywhere. <laughs> I tend to. So what are the most common issues you actually run into? Um, so, um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. The, the um, uh, two issues uh, I, I run into very often. One is the um, visibility from the ceiling is not the same as the view from the ground. Um, and you, you, on this call, you all know this by heart, is when, when you design your access points, you do a site survey with a laptop, which has a very strong antenna, so the form factor is very important there. So you can get the signal down to the moon, basically, and you'll, you'll still be connected. And then, of course, when you 
uh, walk around with a real Wi-Fi connection once the network is up and running. Uh, it's a phone maybe, it's laptop sometimes, but it's a phone often and the form factor is different. So the thresholds are going to be different. Yet when you look at your RF map, again, seen from the ceiling, you see nice overlaps between your cells. Uh, so it looks like everything should be working fine. But when you're on the ground with those small devices, the body is enough to create a big impact on, on, the, uh, on the conditions of the connection. And as you turn the corner, uh, although from the sky it looks like those access points are in range, of course the wall is going to be create, creating some micro-interferences there, you know, obstacles basically, where you lose connection uh, for, for a few milliseconds. So that difference between the view from you know, the, the heat map uh, in Cisco Prime Infrastructure, DNA Center or something else, versus the view that you have on the ground walking, uh, is, is that common issue. And not taking into account the rate shifting requirements, uh, and not taking into account the fact that when you are at any point in on the floor, you should have a line of sight to the next access point that you're going to walk towards. Is something that people tend to forget very often, uh, because they design you know from a sort of global uh, uh, overlap uh, type of of idea, um, and they don't always look at how devices actually are going to use uh, that. And in many networks, access points provide information about the next access point with 11K, 11V, etc. But they can only provide information they have. So if the next access point is not seen from the previous access point, because again, there is a corner or something, you cannot rely on the access point to tell you. And the access point is not going to know that you're going to turn that corner, and your phone doesn't know either. So it's only when it's too late, when you're redshifting, losing packets, that the phone gets into panic mode. So, you know, that difference between this view from the ground and view from the ceiling is one very, very common issue. Um, I would say that another one is wrong assumptions, uh, where, where people simply decide that if you have a certain amount of signal everywhere, you should be good. And sometimes people get conservative and say, well, you know, it's better if you have more signal and less. And you end up, you know, I've seen a shopping mall in the UK a few months back where uh, you could from pretty much any point in the mall hear 11 access points. 11 is a little bit too many. You know, I'm happy that they bought Cisco AP. But you know, I'm, I'm thinking it might be a little bit on the aggressive side, especially as they were allowing 2.4 as well as 5 gig. Um, so, you know, saying you should be hearing, and we all know that here, right? We should hear... You know, two APs perfectly, a third one would be good, no more than that. If it's more than that, there is probably some design challenges, would you say? <laughs> so so you're saying, you know, well, you know, two AP coverage is good, three AP coverage is good, 11 AP coverage not so good? Well, it depends on what you want to achieve, right? If you want to fry an egg, maybe that's <laughs> that may be not enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So ideally, you only need one connection, but as you want to roam, you probably need another one. So you need at least a second one and a backup plan. And probably because movements are, are stochastic or Brownian in nature when you're in open space, you may have a third one. Um, as you add access points, of course, each of them is consuming airtime. Um, and if they're on different channels, you know, you could think it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's going to have an impact on what your previous AP is going to tell you, but the neighborhood is going to tell you that of that many APs you can go to, and the scanning time is going to take longer. And then the arbitration is going to be, you know, a challenge for the, for the client. If many APs, you know, are allowed, you, you would pick one, and maybe that's not the one you're going towards. Uh, so, you know, having this idea where you say, where well, are people going to walk and make sure I always have at least one AP and the next one available, and probably a backup, a third one, uh, to me is, is reasonable. Uh, when we get to 11, yeah, I'm like you. I'm thinking, 
do you, I mean, why? <laughs> why do you need that many? It's probably <laughs> going to create problems unless you don't move, in which case you don't roam. But if you do, it might be a challenge. You're giving headache to your phone. <laughs> so um, we have a question from um, the audience out there, and it kind of steps back to the tools conversation we were talking about a little earlier. Um, it's what advice would you give to those struggling with the cost of commercial applications commonly used for troubleshooting? Yeah. I.e. OmniPeak. Right. I'm sure yeah. that's what we were throwing at there. Probably, and I, I understand the pain, yes. <laughs> um, to me, OmniPeak is a fantastic application. Um, and it's, it's fantastic because it has all sorts of filters and, and, and object presets to speed up the processing after capture or the processing during capture. Um, I tend to think that tools uh, like Wireshark are very powerful. But they were not designed, you know, they were EtherCAP before, and they were not designed initially for Wi-Fi. There, were a lot of, there are a lot of filters that are brought into Wi-Fi to understand Wi-Fi. But there hasn't been a lot of effort in the community to implement inside Wireshark filters like you have them on OmniPeak. And that means that if you cannot afford OmniPeak and you have to use uh, Wireshark, it's almost your duty to spend some time with the community and on this call, all these people here are professionals using these tools. And all of you have uh, preset EO filters into Wireshark. And you can find around in the community people who are ready to share those filters. But you need to do that, you know, do your homework before using Wireshark uh, so that you have carved it into a tool that is efficient enough. It probably will be a while you know, until you can get something as developed as OmniPeak inside Wireshark, but at least you should have under your belt, if you use Wireshark, enough filters that you can right-click and click a couple of things uh, to to process the the, the the capture before, you know, or, or after uh, the capture is done, uh, so as to only display the result that could be of interest to you. Otherwise, you know, it's it's very hard to do. Uh, so you know, you have to exchange money against your work. You know, if you cannot you know, uh, for that expensive tool, although it's, it's a great tool, then you have to spend your time to create the filters that allow you to use properly this, uh, this free tool. So, so what I'm hearing is Jerome might publish an article on his top 10 favorite wireless filters for Wireshark. <laughs> Actually, you know what, we should, we should do that. We should exchange that in forums uh, because, you know, yeah. some of them are obvious. Um, some of them I, I use only once every three or four months, and when I do, I'm say, ah, I'm so happy I wasted my weekend with that, you know, a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so top ten, yeah, it's interesting. It would be an interesting exchange to have. So which one is more valuable? You know, which one will be more yeah. common is probably easy, and which one is more valuable? That would be a nice exchange to have. Yeah. Yeah, because some of those there's there's a lot of really good Wireshark people out there that have some great filters. So I would be, I I know me, I am horrible at writing filters. I'm really good at googling other people's filters. So <laughs> yeah, at least you know what filters you're looking for. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, I'm good at, at chasing people's colors. You know, I found a lot of people <laughs> have very good taste. You know, coloring packets is super key, right? Because this 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 stick out. Um, so I, I have my own colors, but then I look at some other people and say. Well, I see that package very well. I should change my color code. So I end up changing my colors every two or three months, which doesn't really help. But yeah, <laughs> Googling those is something I do a lot, yeah. <laughs> so uh, usually if somebody has you out at their environment, that's probably a sign that there's a serious problem. So then my question to you is what, what has been your most 
memorable troubleshooting challenge you've come across, like something that's that always sticks out of your mind? So, you know, I have um, two memories I think I'll cherish for the rest of my life, uh, one with uh, fun and the other one with fear. Um, the first one is is a fun one. It was actually a small shop that happened to be near the hotel where I was. Uh, and it was back in the days where I was opening my mouth too much. Um, I, I tend to do that still, but it was worse in those days. And uh, the, the, the waitress had these sort of small tablets where they would input your order and it would go to the kitchen. Um, and I, I could see that things were not working as planned. They were clicking and clicking again and moving around and clicking again, which, you know, all of us Wi-Fi guys smell troubleshooting issues there. And, you know, I, I, I opened my mouth and said, what's going on with your Wi-Fi? Because, you know, I'm a Wi-Fi guy. And I said, oh, yeah, Wi-Fi never works. You know, it's, it's horrible. We said, okay, you know what? Uh, let me come back tomorrow and, and, and try to see what's going on because here's, you know, it's a bit crowded. I want to and I have my tools anyway. So I, I went back the next day. Uh, with uh, uh, you know RF tools and capture tools and looked around the restaurant and the network was perfect. You could get perfect Wi-Fi, five bars, you know, kind of Wi-Fi all across the the restaurant. It wasn't a big place anyway. It was very small. So I said, well, you know that I'm getting stuck here and I'm wasting my time pretending I can troubleshoot your problem and have no idea what's going on. Um, so you know, it took us so long. Uh, that it was at the time when the uh, shift started, and I was still there uh, trying to troubleshoot Wi-Fi. And suddenly, Wi-Fi, boom, dropped. The signal dropped where I was. It was just by the door, and the signal dropped. So I look at my laptop, and you know, I look around, and I turn to the kitchen. And actually, the uh, access point was in the kitchen. And again, it was a small place. And I see that the, the cook was at the door, and he was a strong man, I would put it that way. And basically, he liked to watch people enjoy his food. And because the access point was positioned behind him somewhere on the counter, every time he was checking at the door if people were enjoying his food, he was killing the Wi-Fi. It was enough that, you know, in the far corner of the restaurant where I was, Wi-Fi's connection would drop. So, you know, he was basically a victim of his own success. You know, just enjoying people watching his food was killing his business because he could not get more orders at that time. <laughs> so here, you know, there was a fun thing. The fix was easy, right? You just move the access point where people actually need the Wi-Fi, which is not in the kitchen, which is in the main room. <laughs> that was that was a fun one. Another one. The Wi-Fi um, must suck wherever he goes, whenever he's holding his device. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's more a strange design, right? So if you uh, put an access point in a restaurant, if you need Wi-Fi uh, in the kitchen, put it on the ceiling. That's my recommendation now, um, not on the counter behind the cook, because it's going to get wet. You're going to get a pizza on that access point. Um, and of course, you know, in the main room. Um, another one I had was in a hospital. Um, and that was terrible because, you know, Wi-Fi is, is important in healthcare and sometimes it's uh, business critical and their business is very critical. Uh, and they had a lot of issues with uh, voice quality. Um, and I spent two days troubleshooting there um, and I couldn't find, couldn't find the issue. And I was, you know, very worrisome, not because I wasn't finding the issue so much that, you know, I, I was thinking I, I can't figure out what the problem is. Um, and I was, you know, in the days where I didn't have tools yet. Um, and it turned out that it was an inverted Wi-Fi uh, signal. And uh, so all the pros on this call know what that is, but if you're listening and you don't, it's, a, uh, it's basically a, a type of Wi-Fi uh, where you have different types of, uh, 
uh, when you modulate your signal, you have a way to encode your zeros and your ones in, in your waves. And we call that the I and the Qs. That's the way you, you, you send the RF signal out of, of, your, of, your, of your access point. Um, and invert the Wi-Fi basically inverts these two, where you send an I, you send a Q, and vice versa. Um, from the outside, it looks like a Wi-Fi signal, but because it's inverted, it's going to basically corrupt any other Wi-Fi signal that's going to be aligned with it, you know, in terms of, of RF wave, uh, just because it's as if you are sending an upstream and you have a downstream exactly at the same time, and they compensate, basically. Um, and it just happened they were using a sort of a proprietary uh, system that was pre-Wi-Fi, um, and that was, you know, sending those inverted signal uh, for reasons I've, I've, I've never understood. But you know, I will always remember um, thinking back in those days. It was a long time that you know just using basic troubleshooting tool on the controller and the access point would be enough. And worst case scenario, I could stick a USB thumb drive in my laptop um, and then capture Wi-Fi. I would see something and I couldn't see anything. Um, this is where uh, I realized that using tools that could analyze the RF environment is sometimes critical. Um, since then, you know, the uh, Wi-Fi community has made a lot of progress to chase out of the networks these kind of devices. They were all devices. So they are less common today, although you may still get some of those warnings. That's one thing. And of course, today, all the uh, access points, you know, Cisco access points, um, they have the uh, cleaner chipset. So they will tell you this is inverting Wi-Fi if something happened. So that was, you know, before those days. But, you know, I, that was scary, you know. Uh, and that gave me the idea that you cannot go troubleshooting if you don't have the tools. And the tools mean that you have the physical hardware tool, you have the software tool, and your brain tools. You know, you have trained before um, in, you know, filtering if it's Wireshark, uh, running scripts, uh, looking for packets, understanding choreographies of exchangers, uh, so that when you're on site, you don't waste time trying to understand the process. You want to spot what is not normal in the process. And that means you have seen that process enough times that you spot anomaly immediately. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. A lot of times the tools are great, but if you didn't know how to use your tools, then what's the point of having those tools? Let's kind of move over to um, what we try to do to avoid troubleshooting is optimizing and, you know, getting things in the network as right as they can be. So what steps do you take, Jerome, when you're out there, you've deployed a wireless network, and now you would like to validate it and optimize it? So what are kind of your processes for doing that? Oh, so very often, if, if I have done the site survey, which happens less and less, um, my first step, of course, is to verify that the access points are where I expected them to be. I mean, not real, only just you know, the location on the floor, but also the, the height if it's on the wall versus on the ceiling, et cetera. This is, this is critical. I will always remember uh, back in the days when I uh, was doing a lot of site surveys, uh, I was marking the walls in the location where I thought the access point would be, and I was naive enough to think that uh, everybody would understand that if I mark the wall here, the access point has to go on the ceiling, you know, in front of that wall. Um, oh, which no. is a silly assumption, right? Why would you think that? <laughs> I was young and full of hope back then. And, you know, most of the time it didn't work, but it didn't work too bad. But once in Spain, it didn't work very bad because the access points were all at ground level where the uh, power outlets were uh, because the guy who positioned the access point and the wiring had no idea about what Wi-Fi was. So he had power there. So he thought that positioning those white boxes at the same level would make total sense. So not only they were oh, wow. not on the ceiling, you know, so not the right you know, position and angle, but also they were at ground level. Needless to say, um, 
it took me a, a few explanations to tell the uh, owner that everything was wrong, it had to be redone, and actually that my technique to convey the right position for the access point was a sticker on the wall, and I thought that was okay. <laughs> and of course that was not. So, of course, you know, today I take a picture, uh, of course I put the sticker on the ceiling, so I carry a ladder if I do a site survey. Uh, if it's on, the, of course, on the ceiling, and I, I do a sticker, and I take a picture of my stick uh, sticker on the ceiling, so I know where my sticker was, so I don't hear it was there. I promise you. Uh, so that's something I, uh, of course, verify. I do SMLA side surveys. I, I must say, um, most of the time I arrive in places where a network is already deployed. So the first thing I do is to verify the RF signal. Uh, always, you know, you, and, and as we're saying at the beginning of, of this conversation, uh, just a basic tool that gives you a real view of the RSSI is good enough in most cases to verify that you have at least, you know, minus 65, 67, 70, you know, depending on what kind of network you're building, high density voice or, or standard density. Um, and also keeping in mind that if you use a tool, you know, like Android, they have multiple tools that give you that kind of visibility. Um, the small print of the tool is going to tell you how often the signal is refreshed. So it's not just walking around, it's a painful process of walking, stopping, waiting for the refresh and walking again um, to make sure that you, know, you have a good visibility of the edge of the cell. Then of course verifying that you have the overlap with the other one, uh, the next cell, uh, and that should be you know, at least 15-20%, that's the first thing. And then what I like to do is to actually use a voice application. Uh, because you know, voice has these stringent requirements that if you drop for more than 50 milliseconds, you should hear it. If you use a right codec, if you use a G711, you'll hear it. More than 100 milliseconds, it's obvious. 50 milliseconds, you hear something a little bit metallic uh, because you'll probably lose one or two packets at very close interval. And more than 100 milliseconds, there is a sequence of packets you lose. So here, you hear something like a click or something. Um, so running uh, between access points, actually jogging, I would say, between access points, uh, to me is a good test uh, to verify that you know you 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 survive that stringent application, um, and then because again I'm lazy I, I know that network have to be designed for people walking, uh, so I like to see how people behave. Uh, so if I have that luxury, I'd like to I like to spend time looking at how people use the Wi-Fi network, um, and it's sometimes quite often very eye-opening uh, because you find that people you know, roam by walking through an empty meeting room because it's always empty. Uh, and that's probably not how the network was designed. And because of doors, you know, the signal is going to likely drop. Um, and they may be on conference calls as they do so. So that means that you need to think, is my roaming path designed to account for this behavior? Um, you see people, you know, dropping in, in locations where they do different activities than from when they walk. Um, and looking at this behavior is going to also give me a good idea of what kind of density of traffic I would be expecting in this area compared to the other. Um, and it's sometimes you know, surprising to see that uh, people uh, conglomerate you know, outside of meeting rooms because meetings always run over. Um, so you suddenly see outside you know, in corridor areas a group of 20 people uh, already studying WebEx com communications, for example. Uh, whereas you never designed that this uh, transitory access point was supposed to take that much traffic. So, you know, looking at people's behavior, uh, to me, is, is always eye-opening to understand uh, what I should be expecting in terms of, of trouble. Um, and then, of course, you know, troubleshooting it becomes what type of application are they using? What, which one is more stringent in terms of, of needs and requirements? Um, the, the jogging thing for voice is something I, I do also for uh, video conferences, even if it's something as simple as FaceTime. You know, something that gives me 
some value of throughput uh, and gives me, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the, the observation of what happens. And of course, it's, it's obvious that I look at the controller configuration. Um, very often, just browsing through the pages um, makes me age 10 years um, and because I, I see our options clicked and, and I'm wondering why <laughs> those options are clicked or not clicked. Uh, so looking at the config is also something um, that, you know, it's, it's always also an interesting exchange to say, so you check that option. I know it's not checked by default because I know the default. Why did you check that option? Beside the fact there was a checkbox and you could check it and click apply. What was, you know, the, the logic? Um, and sometimes you find very surprising um, exchange answering on, on, on philosophy of what should be <laughs> way on one other way. Um, so that's, of course, you know, a step that's, that's uh, uh, to me, a very nice occasion of exchanging views on why things should be configured one way or the other. I mean, you, you mean clicking 160 over 20 just because the number looked better isn't a good idea? Uh, bigger is better, right? So why not exactly? Yeah, yes. <laughs> bigger is better. Yes, yes, exa exactly. That's a, that's a typical example, yes, yes. Or, you know, aggressive load balancing is something that I see a lot. We, so now it's, it's called smart load balancing, right? Smart roaming. Yeah. Uh, so smart is a very attractive word. You want to click smart. So people <laughs> think if I click smart, necessarily my network is really smarter. Smart. Yes, yeah, and that's when you call me because smart. it does. Yeah, it's super smart, and now you can call me because it doesn't work. Um, so that was smart. So we can meet. <laughs> or are those guys that click one through eleven that's because it's one call after everything? <laughs> yeah, super. Oh, can we get that button? That's a new feature request right there, called Darrell. <laughs> <You're quite wrong. laughs> well, actually, we could do screens that do that because I, as I get old, I tend to always click the same things because I know they work. <laughs> they do the job. <laughs> <laughs> so you did, I don't know if I call it recently, but it was a couple months ago, you did a kind of a webinar talking about how iOS kind of scans and kind of works with Wi Fi. So when you're out there, optimizing or validating or even troubleshooting in this case how do you do you do anything different in environments that are like ios or androids or uh primarily dependent on lap laptops is there any do you have any different kind of a methodology about approaching each of those oh yes and you know this is this is a great point because you you remind me why i can sleep at night um, yes, yes, and, and, and actually, and, and the reason why I'm, I'm not sleeping well is because I'm trying to um, make sure that we come up in the industry with practices around that. And, and, and the reason is because exactly to your point, it's very different if it's iOS or if it's Android or if it's a laptop and then what brand. Um, on, on the iOS, we, we know that the device is going to scan at minus 70 dBm. So you know that this is when the device is not going to be happy in the cell anymore. That's easy. It's documented. It's a very fixed threshold. So it's, it's very easy to design around, right? Um, and then, of course, it does what? Well, it tries to find a better AP. And if there is a better AP that is at least 8 dB or 12 dB, depending on if you're communicating or not, you jump there. But if there is no AP, what happens? Well, it sticks to Wi-Fi for, for dear life. So the advantage of this simplicity comes with the challenge that if you have cells that bleed outside of the network, um, you may have your iOS devices stick to that Wi-Fi for a long time, just because you know it's it's Wi-Fi is there, and and depending on the service provider you use, you may have some applications that are load balanced over Wi-Fi that could be LTE, 
uh, one typical case that makes me get nightmares is the voice of Wi-Fi, you know, your dialer that could mm-hmm. be going through Wi-Fi. Um, and in some cases, you know, they stay on Wi-Fi and therefore voice goes there, but really you can't use Wi-Fi. And that's when people say, all right, Jerome, that's where I'm going to use smart roaming, okay? I say, no, can we okay. avoid that? <laughs> um, so that's the cost of iOS. You know, make sure that the design of your cell makes you don't bleed through to a place where you would be sticky because if there is no better place to go, iOS is going to stay there um, for a long time, and that's not good. So that's a design requirement. But if you take a Samsung phone, the Samsung phone has two types of thresholds. Uh, I mean, if you take anything you know, recent, uh, you know, Android 6 or, or later. One of them is actually minus 75 dBm. So they're not looking at minus 70, they're looking at minus 75. And that's because before that, there is a rate shifting speed and a loss rate that is going to help the phone say, you know, I'm, I may have something which is better than minus 75, but I'm losing frames, too many of those, and I'm rate shifting too fast. Therefore, there is something wrong. I need to scan and go to the next access point. So the design here is different because then your, your cell overlap needs doesn't need to be as, as large as iOS, you know, technically, because you would get to minus 75. But then the density of users in your, in your cell is going to play a big role in the behavior of the device. And that's a complicated for us troubleshooting because, you know, if you want to reproduce the issue, you have to have the same density if you want to understand, you know, what, what may have, have, have happened. Um, so typically, I tend to design for iOS knowing that the minus 75 will be pulling a little bit be, uh, be, uh, deeper into the next cell, uh, but the density, if it's a normal uh, density, is going to help make the roaming occur before the minus 75 threshold. Um, but then if it's a laptop, uh, macOS, for example, they also scan at minus 75. And those are not going to look for any specific uh, loss rate before. I mean, of course, if you drop the, co- the communication, it's one thing. But if you don't, it's going to scan just like iOS is at minus 70, macOS is at minus 75. So your cells are much larger now. Um, and the question is, what is the mix of devices you have in your cell? Because if it's a mix of iOS and macOS, what are you doing with those? Are you running calls on your macOSs? How much compared to the iOSs? Um, and that may drive different um, design decisions depending on those. Not to mention that the, the macOS device is unlikely to jump to LTE at any point in time because probably you don't have LTE on those. If it's your iPhone, if it drops Wi-Fi, then it jumps to LTE. If it's your Samsung, and if you are you know, within that threshold of too many uh, losses and, and too, many, uh, too much rate shifting within a certain amount of time, um, beyond a certain slope, beyond a certain uh, ratio, uh, the uh, Samsung phone is going to look at the LTE leg and decide if it wouldn't be better uh, to jump off to the LTE. Um, so you know that those behaviors exactly as, as you described are very different from one device to the other. Um, and that makes that when you design, you're left with a lot of Cornelian choices to make. Say, oh, do I have to design around minus uh, 65, 67? But I know that iOS is going to roam after that, but not so far behind that. But Samsung much farther, and macOS as well. So if my cell is empty, you will have a weird behavior on your Samsung device. If the cell is full, you may be roaming early on Samsung compared to iOS. Uh, so it's, it's not, you know, you, you won't have a consistent behavior. So you, you need to keep this awareness in mind. I know that typically if you set your cells at minus 67, you have still a strong signal at minus 67. So you give breathing room to your devices to do whatever they have to do, depending on how you know, they, they, they perceive the environment. Um, if you stretch your cell to minus 70, 72, uh, then you start having 
places where you have a lot of management frames because devices are not in comfortable uh, are not comfortable in that cell, but they don't have a better place to go, um, and that starts creating some uh, some headaches ar around the design. So you know, it, on the design side, you know, designing minus 67 is always um, a, a, a prudent thing to do. Then troubleshooting becomes complicated, uh, and last word on that. Um, iOS is going to take loads into uh, account when roaming to the next cell. So if you have two APs with about the same signal, um, iOS 10 and later are going to pick the AP with the least number of clients. Um, if you take a Samsung device, we said it takes the load into account uh, to the set of threshold for roaming out, but not for roaming in. It's going to look at your signal. So the choice that these devices will make when you move from one access point to the other is going to be different uh, depending on how many access points you have available based on the traffic you have in the access point you're coming from and the access point you're going towards. So that makes troubleshooting super challenging to try to reproduce things that were happening before uh, you, you came to troubleshoot. Because unless you have a good understanding of how uh, the congestion was at that time, then you don't really have a good way of understanding what the behavior was uh, because it's going to be very device dependent. So what I try to do is to get some you know, agreement in the industry so that we all have the same threshold, so that all of us you know, troubleshooting don't have to send off you know, and, and read the, the minds of, of designers uh, of various chipsets in various environments. But we, we could face you know, common environments where all the devices would have at least the same logic in terms of using what we all know is useful. You know, load is useful in all cases, signal is useful in all cases. So getting the same type of thresholds and mechanism, at least method, um, is what I'm uh, attempting to do. So what you're saying is that uh, all client devices aren't the same? <laughs> Did I really say that? <laughs> I, I think that's what we got at there. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's a problem we're always running into. It's just like, well, I designed it for my laptop, which it took the survey, but they're all using their iPads. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's a hard game. It's a hard game, and, and, and as you say, it's hardware and it's software. You know, you have iOS 12 and iOS 13 may make a change, you know. Um, so what was working two days ago doesn't work exactly the same way once you do the updates. So it's a hard game, yeah. And, of course, it's tempting to say, well, let's design for the worst of them. But that doesn't mean you should have, you know, end up with 11 access points, right? So you, it's, it's always a difficulty to say, where, what does that mean to be conservative in the design? Well, I mean that 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 mall was obviously designing for an iPhone two, so you know they were, <laughs> you know they had to make sure you know that they could get that signal there for those iPhones. Yep, iPhone two with the cover, this metallic cover. <laughs> yeah, oh, that you have in your pocket. Yeah, yeah, in the cover, in the pocket. I don't even think they had Bluetooth back then, so we, we didn't have to worry about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's a hard choice. Um, and you know, we, we used to say you know, have all these devices that are also supporting all the protocols. That tends to be less and less. What we see more and more is more engineers being clever. Yeah, I remember when I was young and full of hope 20 years ago, we, we had three or four arbitration mechanisms, you know, and they were documented papers saying this is the logic of uh, algorithm blah versus bleed. So it was pretty simple. You would pick up a device, you know, sniff it a bit, and would, you would know which one it was implementing. Today, you have so many clever engineers who think they're clever um, that, you know, the complexity is, is, is rising all the time. Uh, so being conservative is the only, only possibility on, unless we get some reason back into the industry. Awesome. It's a lot of good stuff, Jerome. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a groups at the uh, Wi-Fi Alliance. 
which are working on some at least unification of a messaging exchange, which allows which will allow the device basically to tell infrastructure. This is my logic. Um, and there are also some some certifications the Wi-Fi Alliance we work on where we would have the infrastructure being able to share with the device to tell the device, look, dude, in this area, in this in this network, the cell edge is at minus 65. You know, giving that information to the device and of course testing what that means for the device because minus 65 from whom device standpoint. So we need to understand how the device sees the access point, um, and that would allow the device to get to a position where the AP says, "Yep, right here." And that would help, you know, the device say, okay, therefore, but from here and on, I should get better signal from a better access point. So we have this effort at Wi-Fi Alliance. We also have um, uh, some effort in the uh, IEEE, in the RevMD of the, uh, the center, uh, to try to unify not only the packet exchange, the frame exchange, but also the mechanism for which we provide information inside those frames. Uh, but we know those things are, you know, taking time. You know, typically Wi-Fi Alliance is a two, three-year type of uh, timeline. IEEE is much longer very often, um, and so that's why we, we, we make you know, noise around Apple and, and, and others to try to say, can we kickstart the process by uh, you know, starting and, and at least also getting feedback? Does it work? Is it getting better uh, so that we can you know, accelerate that kind of adoption? But you know, I hope that by the time 5G comes out, Wi-Fi should be working fine. Sorry, I interrupted you. So, yeah, but I was going to say, so are you guys finding trouble? Because, I mean, it's it's nice to know that the IEEE is looking at it and the Wi-Fi Alliance is, they're, they're trying to put certifications towards it. Like you said, it'd be awesome if the client goes to the AP, hey, this is how I roam. And the AP goes, no, this is how you should roam because this is how I'm set up to do it. But that, that means, you know, Cisco can put that in their system, but that doesn't mean a Samsung or an Apple or a, was it a Huawei or, you know what I mean? Whatever people are using nowadays, that those people, those manufacturers are going to put that ability in their chipsets. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, there's got to be a way somewhere that we can say, hey, this device can't be used on this network unless you do this. I mean, right. It, it, right. Absolutely. And even the Wi-Fi Alliance, you know, standardization is what they do. But, you know, they have a program. Then each vendor decides if they want to be in the program or not. Um, and that's where this idea of momentum comes into play, where we say, you know, if, if you don't do that, well, you may be banned from some networks. And by the way, uh, your competitor is going to work much better than you do in this enterprise environment because they have this uh, intelligent exchange with the access point. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's the, the pressure that will happen on vendors to, to implement. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I hate to say it, but I think one of the hardest things about Wi-Fi is that we are so backwards compatible. <laughs> Yeah. Do you it's see on the get, road get, car from the 1940s, right? We don't anymore. But in Wi-Fi, we say, oh, we love 11B because those, you know, barcode mm. scanner my grandfather bought, I still use them. <laughs> well, you should. They still work. <laughs> exactly. They still yeah. work, guys. <laughs> my voice mean? phone, when I walk around, it does it. But the scanner <laughs> still works. Yeah, that's that's the issue, yeah. Yeah, that's the issue. We like compatibility. But, and even in the Wi-Fi, the IEEE, we remember a couple of years ago when Cisco came and said, we should make just like we did web obsolete in the standard we should make b obsolete 11 b obsolete and we had half the room yes. throwing tomatoes at us saying well what about iot what about those it's you no know, cheap from the chipset standpoint cheap from the energy consumption standpoint so it makes sense we need to keep those um and they have a point it's just that the environment is uh, is different from you know factory floor to wife to to the enterprise and Wi-Fi is so flexible and nimble that it, it's everywhere in, in very opposite environments. 
maybe we need to treat it like BOE where we have IoT devices are class one and everything else is class two. You know, maybe we just start separating things out. Exactly. And you, you come to AX, right? That's what you're saying. Because AX is going to, with this uh, OFDMN scheduling, will be able to tell the IoT devices, you sleep for five cycles. I'll wake you up. Don't worry, Mama. We'll, we'll, we'll wake you up. <laughs> and in between, the big guys can send voice traffic. <laughs> Hey, guys, we've got two minutes left. I think we've got time for one more question, and then we can wrap up. Oh, okay. That should be a question from someone else. Yeah. Any other participants? Either from the audience or from come you on, guys. Come on, Lee. I know, Lee I know Lee's question. got a question. He's been chatting it up. <laughs> yeah, Lee had actually a question on Fastlane. Say, does Fastlane help? And yeah, you have a good good point, Lee, because Fastlane doesn't help, right? It, 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 we were talking about thresholds of roaming, right? Fastlane can tell you you can mark QoS on this app or not, uh, but at the end of the day, RF is the same. Uh, so when you get to the edge of the cell, if you decide to stick to that cell, even if I tell you you can mark or not, your traffic is going to suffer the same way because the signal is just too poor. It's a question of airtime. Yeah, that's a great point. Fastlane you know, helps comparatively if everybody's in the same shoes, right? But at the edge of the cell, it's not what we need anymore. We need something, a different type of exchange. Good point. Okay. Well, I'm going to go ahead and close up then. This has been Episode 12 of Cisco Champions Radio, Season 5. Uh, thank you to all of you for joining us today, and especially to Jerome for sharing his insight, and Rowell and Robert for hosting today's session. As always, thanks to everyone for joining and participating in Cisco Champions Radio. Look out for this episode and other awesome episodes on blogs.cisco.com slash perspectives. I'm Brett Shore, today's moderator, and until next time.